is there any data analysis to the audio itself? Like, have you is there is there any like machine learning around the audio itself? Or not yet, but I'm sure there will be. At Absolutely. some point down the line, you'll be able to say in like 2019, this violinist screwed up at this moment because <laughs> our database knows. We would never say that. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, I pay a visit to the New York Philharmonic, which happens to be across the street from the 538 offices and also happens to be in the midst of a digital archives overhaul. Barbara Hawes and her team of archivists have been turning decades and decades of meticulously kept records, 172 years of records, in fact, into digital information. They enter data about every performance, they photograph artifacts, they compile press clippings, and eventually all of that will be able to be searched and analyzed online. So today we're going to pay a visit, and let's just get right into it. It's a short walk across Columbus Avenue. You get there right away. Um, Jody is here for Barbara. So no time for a significant digit this week. Yeah, I think they gave me. We'll just dive right in. Thank you. Hi. Yes, I am. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Nice to see you. Did you see the harp cases? Well, so yes, your instructions say turn right off the elevator, go out on the hallway, and then buy the old harp. And I wasn't sure if that was like a euphemism or something. It's just a big old harp case. Yeah, yeah. That harp case belonged to the first woman musician of the New York Philharmonic and joined about 1928. Is there a harp inside the harp case? No. There you go. Uh, and, and I brought out some original things because if you come into the archives, that's really cool. so. This is the this is the usual when someone comes to visit. You just you make a little spread for them. Yes, we have a show and tell box of the highlights of of what we consider to be the the best treasures in the archives. Uh, so, for instance, here's the first program, December seventh, eighteen forty two. The first, like, the first program the ever. Very one, right. December 7th, 1842, says first concert, first season. And the first work is a Beethoven Grand Symphony in C minor, which is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And here is the actual score. The and you just pulled it out and are handling it and just... <laughs> there's, no, there's no gloves involved. There's I'm no. the archivist. <laughs> you can touch whatever you want. <laughs> I joke that sometimes people go, why did you become an archivist? I said, so I could hold the stuff. <laughs> um, gloves are usually put on for journalists to, and for people to think that it's really special, but actually you can do more damage with gloves. Well, this is radio. We can just say you're wearing gloves and no one will know. No, no, we never wear gloves. <laughs> you're wearing a full hazmat suit, actually. Well, <laughs> right, don't breathe on this. But I, I, I'm an, I'm the type of archivist that believes that uh, making these things more accessible is what's important. And being able to understand them is what's important. Uh, preservation is secondary to that. So, yes, so here is the actual first edition of the Beethoven Fifth Symphony. It was on the stand on December 7th, 1842, and you can hold it. Wow. Um, so just to paint the scene here, I mean, we're, you know, we're standing in the archives. There's a lot of things on the, on the shelf for display here. But as we walked in, we walked past rows and rows of stuff in boxes and, you know, fully archived and cataloged. But when did the effort on your part go from having stuff that you can feel and hold and touch to putting stuff uh, online in the cloud? 
Uh, we started this about 2006 with a planning grant from the Leon Levy Foundation. It was obvious that uh, we'd spent the last 20 years gaining intellectual control over the collection, putting all the metadata that relates to a file folder or the programs or photographs into the database, uh, just so that we knew where to go and find it on what shelf. Then as digitization, even even though, I must say, I have, I have the distinct honor of, uh, as the archivist from in 1984, of having the first PC on my desk, right? I had a, I had a Wang. Uh, the Philharmonic was run by some IBM System 34, but I had a Wang uh, personal computer, and we started creating databases at that time to track all of this uh, extraordinarily detailed information. Your work has always been, even in the pre-digital era, about categorizing and creating metadata and all of those things. So were you already kind of halfway down the road in that process, or did the analog metadata not mesh with the digital metadata? No, no, you're absolutely right. That was the premise of the project, is that we had already created these extraordinary databases. And so how do you leverage those databases? And those were like in a card catalog? like No, no. Well, when I first started in the 80s, sure, the, the performance history database uh, was on 355 cards in my boss's office in this uh, well-locked cabinet, and they were updated nightly after every concert uh, by Della, who would type them in with her typewriter. So the concert would end, and then someone would w- walk over to the typewriter and then just log everything that happened according to some code and then stick it what? into the card catalog? Oh, well, no, they would actually pull out the, so if it was Beethoven's Fifth, they would pull out the card, the repertoire card for Beethoven's Fifth out of the five-by-eight card system, put it in the typewriter, and type the new date, last night's date, tonight's date, in that. And then they would pull out the conductor's card, and they would type the date that conductor played, et cetera, and soloist. What we did in the 80s was then, on the Wang, was to start to digitize and create a performance history database. So what we did when we started to digitize was to say, how can we use the performance history database, as well as our archives catalog, which is electronic, to be sort of the ground zero for all metadata in digitization. So how can we just simply take that digitized image and connect it up with the pre-existing database? And that's what we did. So, so many times people feel they have to start over, that they have to create a new database for the digital world. And what we did was to leverage our old databases. What are, we, what are we looking at what? here? This is a large, I mean, this is a spreadsheet, basically. It's a spreadsheet, exactly. We know not only who was in the orchestra for a particular season, we know who actually showed up to play in 1830, 1875 uh, at the concerts, but then at all the rehearsals leading up to that. It's a spreadsheet grid, and then there's names that go, uh, you know, kind of on the x-axis, and the y-axis is the date of the performances, and then there's hand-logged, and x, I guess, means you were there, and a o means you were not. And then at the end, they've tallied it all up, and we have... What does that say? See, this is six concerts. These are the total concerts that they actually played in. 
Ah, so we can see. So most people played, a lot of people played in six concerts, but then let's find our biggest recidivist. Who was flaking in 1875? What is that? Uh, G-A-L or... No, look, this person only went to two. Yes, it doesn't look good for Mr. Wolf. No, it's not good at all. And then look, see, these are the fines they were assessed. So Mr. Wolf was fined 11 times. $11. Oh, $11. That's $11. That's pretty big. Right. Um, so what are the categories of things that you are collecting? I mean, obviously, we've discussed what's performed, when, and by whom. What are the other things that you're interested in, in keeping track of? Oh, well, our goal is to digitize uh, every document that's in the archives, uh, regardless of its significance to us. Our assumption is that we really don't know ourselves what might be of significance to a researcher. Uh, And we've learned that year in, year out, when there's something kind of rises to the top and we didn't realize its meaning, and all of a sudden it's taken on new meaning. Uh, It's been here all along. It sits quietly where it is. But until maybe we have enough information to connect the dots, does it then all of a sudden become a new revelation. And I guess this is the first time that it's not just up to you to connect the dots, right? People out in the world are connecting the dots. So has that happened? I don't know. They don't talk to me anymore. (laughs) I mean, you you see, you're here in the reading room at this table, and and what was wonderful about the pre-digitization world is that people had to come here to do research. So then we would talk. Uh, I'm still working on uh, how do we replicate that discussion. Uh, How do we share in some ways? But regardless, more will be known and it will go on and have much greater value than could ever be managed here at this very small room in this reading table. And it's got to feel good, though, that someone is out there quietly without even knowing about it digging into your archives and possibly finding patterns and so forth. Oh, yeah. And I mean, absolutely. And and even with something like with analytics, we can see that, you know, Leonard Bernstein's score of Mahler's Sixth Symphony has been viewed well over 25,000 times. Well, it would be physically impossible for that one single document to be physically looked at that many times without becoming dust. We assumed when we started this, that there would be certain documents uh, that would become of greater interest. But I didn't think it would happen so quickly. Within the first year of us launching the the digital archive site, uh, a group of Columbia sociologists, Columbia University sociologists, led by Seamus Khan, came to us to say they would like to have all of our subscription records, uh, the seat books where people actually sat in the hall, and we also have their addresses because, of course, we mailed them tickets. Uh, So, uh, and what they wanted to do was to overlay that data with where they were in the hall, where people sat in the hall, with where they lived in the city to see if there was any kind of spatial relationship between where they were in the hall and where they lived in the city. Now, No one had done any kind of even thinking about that before we started to digitize. And what's but what's the goal there is to try and kind of paint a like social dynamic of 
New York City? Yes, I think that is what their goal is, is to see. I think they assumed that if you were sitting in the parterre boxes at the Academy of Music, that probably you lived on the Upper East Side and maybe between, you know, 60th Street and 75th Street, something like that. But actually what they found was that the that the subscribers who sat in the best seats actually lived along Fifth Avenue, regardless whether it was at West 4th Street or whether it was up at 96th Street. It was Fifth Avenue that was important and not the neighborhoods that we consider to be significantly socially important today, like the Upper East Side. I don't know what else you do. I mean, they want to they overlay you know, the census material with that and the Blue Book material with that, all these different kinds of other sources. It, it, so it's only a starting point. But wait, what is, what is so special about Fifth Avenue? I don't know. (laughs) Well, look, we're comfortable with posing questions and not necessarily having answers to them on this podcast. But that is totally fascinating. Maybe we need to go track them down when they're done with their research. We can just think about that for a while, though. It could be that it was the major thoroughfare. Although we think of Broadway as a major thoroughfare, maybe Fifth Avenue. Maybe we have to go back and look at the mansions along Fifth Avenue. Um, it, It opens up all kinds. You can't answer the question simply the first time around. It just gives you another layer of looking at a place or an activity and maybe an insight into the people themselves yeah i mean i want to do this for yankee stadium next oh great idea maybe not me but we'll find someone to do it there are a lot of (laughs) sociologists out of there I mean, what was it like when you first kind of hit publish on this database and, and put it out into the world or just first opened it up? What did you expect and how quickly did people start to dive in? Well, maybe what we should do, how about if we, yeah, you we wanna... get Mitch in yeah, Mitch, and then talk over. about GitHub? Yeah, okay. Mitch, get over here. So Mitch, you're, what's your last name? Brodsky. All right, Mitch, so you are the... The digital archives manager. Okay, digital archives manager. Yeah. You're like the quant of the office? <laughs> sort of. I'm, I'm the, the digital guy uh, around the office here in the archive. So, uh, so we have this whole, we designed this whole uh, workflow to, to work for, you know, an, asse- an assembly line approach. Uh, and we, right now it's a little empty in here, but normally we have a pretty big staff uh, of interns and assistants who do all that processing work. Okay. And so then it ends up, you know, on line and then what happens uh we wait and see who uh who accesses it through analytics we can get a general sense you have to say how obsessed we became at the very beginning with watching who was using what document from what country and so oh yeah the the handle messiah was yeah. being used in That's the right. ukraine it was a favorite document in the ukraine even though usually the messiah is performed around christmas time but it was it was looked at year-round and constantly. So the largest user of Handel's Messiah was the Ukraine. So we were convinced that it was part of some kind of counter-revolutionary. Um, it was our own imagination, of course. But, I mean, you know, what do we do here? We're, 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 just sit here and write stories in your head about the, the analytics coming in. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but, 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 yes, but it was a, a, an incredible anomaly for who was using it or how it was used anywhere else. And we still don't have an answer for that. It's like, why Fifth Avenue, I guess? Yeah. So. yeah. Are there other outliers that, in your data set that, you just, that just kind of flummox you or, or perhaps have taught you lessons? 
we see certain trends. So, so for instance, uh, Copeland's Clarinet Concerto was accessed in Kudahai, Idaho, uh, you know, six times in a week. So you figure there must be a teacher there. So you start to see those kinds of things and, and better understand how people are probably using it, even though you don't have direct interaction with them. Usually when there's a big audition coming up mm-hmm. in some area of the world, we'll see a spike in that area of the world uh, for a certain piece. And we'll find out, oh, it's on the audition list, of course. And so why are you on, on GitHub? What is on GitHub and, and, and why, why that as opposed to just having a regular old archive? Well, uh, we we built the digital archives, at least the first phase, uh, with the 1.3 million pages from 1943 to 1970. So all those pages and all that metadata is accept- accessible on the, the main search site. We wanted to take it further and release all of the raw data and give people a chance to play with it and see what would come out of it. Um, and we were partially inspired by the museum world, the Cooper Hewitt and the Tate uh, putting their their data up and making that available. So I figured, why not just take all that data and put it in a format that can be easily uh, accessed by data wonk people and let them, you know, we'll see what happens. And it was really exciting, actually, um, speaking of unexpected, uh, within two or three days of putting up the performance history data on GitHub, someone contacted us. Uh, his name is Derek Miller, uh, an English professor at Harvard. And he wrote a little Python script to reformat all of the XML data that I'd put up on the GitHub to make it even easier for people to wrap their heads around. So already within days, there was this immensely useful contribution that, uh, you know, and Python script that I couldn't have written myself. Of course, the the main benefit of uh, our data set is time, the length of time and the density of data over a huge span of time. So that gives you a lot to work with in terms of identifying trends um, and seeing what happens in this period of history versus another period. Like, I'm, I'm totally interested in in the patterns that have emerged over time and whether you've had any of these moments where you said oh man like we've really done this piece a lot or we haven't done this piece enough or someone's overrepresented or underrepresented oh i think that happens quite a bit i mean repertoire goes through sort of uh fits and starts of popularity over time i mean of course there are standards that just seem to beethoven uh, it never decreases. But Mahler, you can definitely see trends in when Mahler is, is more acceptable than, than he has been. When was the last Mahler fad? Oh, well, we're still in it. Oh, okay. Good to know. <laughs> we, we, we haven't left that one yet. Now we're out in the... We're in the stacks. We're in the stacks, right. This is it. It's in the stacks. But so this room is kept at its own separate temperature and humidity than the, than the other rooms are. And uh, this is where the photography takes place. You have like a you know, full rig here. Right. These were, these were shelves uh, that held all of our audio. That's the other side of our archive that is probably incredibly essential, is we record almost every single concert that we produce, uh, that we perform. Is there any data analysis to the audio itself? Like, have you, is there, is there any, like, machine learning around the audio itself? Or Not yet, but I'm sure there will be. At Absolutely. some point on the line, you'll be able to say, in, like, 2019... This violinist screwed up at this moment because our database knows. 
We would never say that. You're, there's no, there's no like saber metrics, but for we musicians, would, we would, ne- we would never say that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's not. I, I know them too well, and I love them dearly. <laughs> But what we do have here is, as you can see, we have all of our recordings back to 1913. We have radio broadcasts back to 1930, about. Uh, we have the earliest known broadcast of a symphony orchestra, which is uh, eight minutes from 1922, when the microphone was just invented. So this is an acetate disc. And what these are are test pressings created by the Bell Labs um, engineers. They had invented the microphone, but it was a little too expensive to hire an entire symphony orchestra to test the, the breadth of its fidelity. So the Philharmonic was broadcasting its concert, and they tapped the telephone line, because the way we would broadcast is to then the microphone was hooked to the telephone line. I think it was WJZ in New Jersey then would broadcast this. They tapped the line. They recorded onto a wax cylinder. The wax cylinder was sent to a pressing plant, and these were made. And there were very, maybe only a, probably about 10 of these. And they were then sent around for people to listen to how good of, was their microphone. It wasn't about the music at all. It was about the technology. Yes, about the technology. And you can you can actually hear you can hear that the, the uh, this is being held together here with a little scotch tape. I see that. Yes, it's, it's surprising how you and I would both hold together a broken disc in the exact same way, which is grab some scotch tape. <laughs> right, but and we don't worry. This has all been digitized and preserved, but you can hear the crack as you're listening to this then too. So we have over 7,000 hours of audio, and, and our goal is to eventually get all of that paired with all the material in the digital archives. So not only can you experience what the audience heard and read, so you have the printed program, you have the score that was on the stand that the conductor used, you have the parts that were on the musician's stands, you have the music critics' reviews, uh, and, and then you have all the business documents to go into uh, how difficult it was to get that concert on the stage that night. How do you code a review? Is there like a favorability rating? Oh, Like a pan or a rave rating? <laughs> That's a very good question. I've never thought about that. I try to remain neutral. <laughs> but if I couldn't go into your archive and say I want to read all of the times that the Philharmonic got panned? You just might have to read. These are the clippings. This is what you were asking. Oh, these are the clippings. These are the clippings. And, and these will be extraordinary. And there will be when they're all online. So, like, for instance, this is 1930 tour um, from, and all the, this one scrapbook is a tour to Europe, but it's organized by how every state in the country covered the foreign tour. So, oh, wow. So what an interesting can, categorization. Yeah. Isn't that? So you can compare about how, you know, Mississippi to Massachusetts varied on what they thought about the New York Philharmonic going to Italy, uh, France, Budapest, this sort of thing. I mean, this is just amazing to me, this book. This one? That yeah. you would, that there's every clipping from every state, and it's tabbed. It's organized in this large book, and you can just tab. And so if I want to look at all the reviews from Rhode Island, I can just go right to it and read all the clippings this means that someone here <laughs> just thinking about the the poor soul here who had to like 
gather every newspaper in the country, right? Or I guess did volunteers send these in? No, this is a press office. This was this tour was a big deal, though. Mm-hmm. This was very important, both in Europe and in the United States, for what it said. It, it really put the New York Philharmonic, it put American orchestras on the map as being world class. And they had a sense of that going into it. Part of the orientation with the incoming staff is that they're a part of this long legacy and that we can't let down the past by simply saying it's not, no longer important. You know, we're a little, we're a little crazy because, as you saw in that very first program, it's numbered first concert, first season. And still today, we number our concerts. Yeah, so there, there is a kind of maybe surprising for me kind of data-centric and categorization streak in, in this world, even though we think of it as, you know, artistic. I agree. I was really stunned when I first came here in 1984 to see the detail uh, by which they they document themselves. I mean, look, we're the only orchestra in the world that numbers our concerts. You know, uh, we're now over 16,000. But this is, we're in the Guinness Book of World Records. And when the Guinness guys come to say, or prove to us your claim that you've played more concerts than any other orchestra in the world, I can pull down all those bound volumes and go, here's 300. It's pretty easy, yeah. Yeah. We're the only ones that accounted. We'll get back to the archives in a minute. But first, What's the Point is brought to you by The Black Tux, which lets you rent a tuxedo or a suit for an event right online. Do people wear tuxedos to the symphony? They probably do. But one of the main ways that people use The Black Tux is for weddings. If you've ever been in a wedding party where you've had to coordinate tuxes or suits, you know it can be a real hassle. I've been through this. You have to figure out schedules. You have to meet up in person. You're kind of not sure if you're getting a good deal when you go to a store. So this is where the Black Tux comes in. Here's how it works. You visit theblacktux.com where you can select from full outfits that are kind of already there for you or you can mix and match and build your own outfit. I've done this part actually. It's really easy. You enter your measurements, some information about what kind of fit you like. They also have people, real people, to help advise you on finding the perfect suit or tux. And then once you fill out your information, your suit will arrive in the mail seven days before your event. And that's plenty of time to try it on. If it needs a tweak, the Black Tux will do whatever it takes to fix it in time for your big event. Once your event is over, you just put the suit back in the box and send it back. Shipping is, of course, free both ways. So it's early spring. There's a decent chance there's some weddings or other big events already on your calendar. If you need to rent a suit or tuxedo for those events, don't do it the old-fashioned way. Visit theblacktux.com slash point and check it out. Be sure to go to theblacktux.com slash point so that they know that this podcast sent you. Now, back to the Philharmonic for the rest of our visit, but let's pretend that we're all now dressed up in tuxes, okay? It'll make things a lot classier for the rest of the show. How long have you been the archivist here? I am the archivist historian, and why that's a distinction that's important is because I'm allowed to interpret. And so I do a lot of analysis and a lot of uh, summaries of, of trends and that sort of thing here as well. But I've been here since 19, 1984. So I'm just curious if you feel like the most interesting story for you is, you know, hidden somewhere in these stacks or is it 
still waiting to come in in the future? Oh, no. I, but there are always, I'm sure, there's so much I don't know. Uh, there's so much. Uh, what's interesting is, is putting together what I discovered when I first came in 1984 and then seeing how it's been built upon. I mean, today we actually track the number of minutes that a musician is on stage. And that's somewhat to do with the fact that violins play more notes than the brass do, for instance. But how does tracking that help us understand the dynamic? Well, violins play more. There's more, there's more written probably for a violin uh, just in general, right? It's not that they're playing more notes per minute. They're playing more minutes overall. And so the idea was, how do you give them some time off? Because a note played is a wear and tear on the body. And how do you give time off for that? And so you start to accumulate minutes, and then you can rotate off. So we we follow a rotational system with the strings that was developed in the 1980s. So it's not really about whether you were there for a given performance, because if you were there for a given performance, but only played... 15 seconds over the course of those two hours that that's what counts whereas if you were playing away for the entire time then then you deserve a bigger break yeah i think it's something like that right right it's like pitch count for a pitcher or something oh yeah they keep you know they start to keep track of that they can keep track of how many pitches so it's not just like how many innings did you play it's if you had an inning where you faced a batter kept fouling it off and you ended up pitching 30 more pitches that inning because of that, then it shouldn't count the same as someone you struck out right away. Which makes sense when you say, oh, he he threw 120 pitches in this game. Of course, that took a greater toll on his arm than if he'd thrown only 60 pitches in that game. So, yeah, you're right. It's the same kind of thing. You know, I am struck by, like, how kind of democratic these filing cabinets are. Like, this diary that you pulled out... It's not on display in some sort of way. It's next to a a box that's probably not that notable. I guess that's why I've never thought of it that way. But but you're right. But it's all of a piece, and so they're all important. Uh, I mean, I have to say, I've worked in other archives, but I've never seen an archives like this one that has maintained the level of detail that the Philharmonic has since the very beginning. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the last 40 years. It has to do with the way they set out in 1842 and the traditions they took on then. But those traditions are still carried out. It was like it, it just set about a, a way of doing things, and they never stopped. And when I came, I observed what those traditions were, and I said, I'm not going to be the one to change it. So, uh, and, and that was before we had such a thing as the digital age and digital humanities. And little did they know, little did I know when I started how valuable all of this detail was going to be. And you just kind of thank yourself that the first people were, had, I don't know, wonky minds or, or you know. Or, <laughs> I, I, I think so. You know, today we... Like, what if, a, what if a flake happened to have been the first employee of the Philharmonic? <laughs> well, partly the reason they... They were flake. I know. Well, the reason they kept all this detail is because they were partners. They were cooperative and managed themselves. And so they, in order to trust each other, they wrote everything down. <laughs> I mean, how often do you do this? Just go grab a random box and say, I wonder what's in there. It's what saves me. I mean, this is the joy of of what I do is, uh, you know, I can go to meetings all week, but one day a week I just need to go do research or just to read. It's never boring. 
You know, it's never boring. That's why it's... This folder might be boring, I have to say. <laughs> this just looks like financial information from 1980, 98, yeah. <laughs> this folder looks pretty boring. Barbara Hawes of the New York Philharmonic Archives, we also heard from Mitch Brodsky. I took a bunch of photos while I was visiting the archives, so if you want to see that original program or that spreadsheet of who came to rehearsal and who didn't, go to our website. We've also, of course, included links to the archives and their GitHub, so you can go and play around there. 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel, and we have studio help from Tony Chow. Joel Werner helps mix and produce the show. Special thanks to Carl Bialik for helping set this episode up. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me, podcasts at 538.com, with any ideas or comments about the show. Don't forget, we've got a data visualization challenge going on with our friends at Dear Data. Spend a week tracking your podcast listening, visualize it on a postcard, and send it to me. I've gotten about a dozen postcards already. Time is almost running out, but if you're thinking about it, go for it. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. You can download a version of his theme on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. The more ratings and review we get, the better we do in the rankings, and that really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon.